Well, I have to tell you, I feel especially burdened uh, for uh, this message and in particular feel a great inadequacy. So would you pray with me as we get started? Father, we have come to these ancient words. By our time, this passage that we are about to study, somewhere around 3,500 years old. And yet it is as fresh and necessary and helpful to us today. Lord, I ask that you would take these words and as you have promised, that you would not allow your word to return void, but that you would accomplish all that you have intended for it to do. Help me and help us to hear and believe and worship. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Exodus 34 for today's message entitled, Behold Our God, the Glorious Savior. Our text for today is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, which is the most glorious revelation of the nature of God in the Old Testament. As I said last week, this will not end our series, but this is the last installment of this series for quite some time. And as we begin our study of the Gospel of John, Lord willing, on October 15th, we will find that this text of God's self-revelation will have prepared us to understand Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Because it's in the person and work of Jesus Christ that the nature of God revealed here is most clearly and powerfully put on display. A.W. Tozer was right to call our attention to the fact that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You and I live out of our view of God. As much as the air that we breathe sustains us, so our view of God shapes us. We may not consciously connect the details of our lives to our view of God, but our view of God determines our lifestyle, our work ethic, our hopes and dreams, how we relate to others, how we respond to our emotional and behavioral struggles, how we spend our money, how we respond to tragedies, and on and on. Everything about our lives is determined by our view of God. Somebody might say, come on, Pastor Gabe. <laughs> that sounds like a typical pastoral exaggeration. Our view of God determines everything in life? Come on. We'll consider this. Jesus confirmed this truth when he taught that the greatest commandment fulfills the whole law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is to say that you are to love God with all of who you are, body and soul, thoughts, words, and actions. And it's beyond question that before we can rightly love God with our whole being, we must, we must first have right 
thoughts about him. For to have wrong thoughts about him is to either not know him or worse, hate him. You can't truly love someone you don't truly know and you certainly can't love someone you hate. So to the extent that our our thoughts don't measure up to the fullness of his revelation, to that extent, our lives will reflect wrong thoughts about God and we will be failing to love him perfectly with our whole being. Now, most of us have wrong thoughts about God, not because we want to, but for two reasons. First, we're in varying degrees ignorant about what God has revealed about himself. And second, we are forgetful about what we do know, and we default to wrong thoughts about God. So we, we haven't learned everything there is to know, and what we have learned, we've, we keep forgetting it. <laughs> and so it's for those two reasons that Scripture repeatedly calls us to grow in our knowledge of God. Proverbs 2 exhorts us to receive and to treasure and to pursue and to search for wisdom the result of which is, verse 5, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Paul prays in Ephesians 1.17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the the Father of glory, may, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. He again prays in Colossians 1, 9 and 10 that believers should be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that, among other things, we will be increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, the knowledge of God is no mere academic pursuit or intellectual effort. It is the very definition of eternal life. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So you can't say that you have eternal life and at the same time have no interest in the knowledge of God. On the other hand, your experience of eternal life, which is not a quantity or length of life, but rather a quality of life, your experience of eternal life is directly proportional to your knowledge of God. And by that, I don't mean the amount of facts about God that you know, but, to the degree, but the degree to which your knowledge of God is the controlling influence in your life. The reason that we struggle with immorality or anger, or depression, anxiety, is because we are not controlled by our knowledge of God. The reason that we are often trying to control our circumstances or other people is because we're not controlled by the knowledge of God. The reason that we're often crushed by unmet expectations and failed dreams is because we are not controlled by our knowledge of God. Now, how can I be certain of that? I give you one convincing proof. No one has ever struggled with sin as they were standing in the presence of God. Anyone to whom God has revealed himself and brought them into his presence through dreams or visions or in some mysterious way, they have been compelled to only do one thing. Worship. No anger, no anxiety, no lust. Oh, 
those who've had the privilege of standing before a holy God were so captivated by their experience of God that in that moment, there was no possibility of temptation. And so it is that we are to live quorum Deo, Latin for before the face of God. We are We are to live with a constant awareness of God's presence in our life. Though the first generation of Israel that came out of Egypt had that tangible manifest presence of God through the pillar of cloud and fire that led them through the wilderness, the next generation didn't. They had God's promise to Joshua that he would be with them, that he would never leave them or forsake them, but they did not have the manifest presence of God like the first generation did. Like them, we live every day without any tangible expression of the presence of God. But unlike them, what we do have is the full revelation of God and His indwelling Spirit that helps us have a far superior understanding of of who God is that, that would enable us to experience God more than Israel ever did, as much as we might want to see those walls of water. The tragedy is that some live quorum Deo before the face of God and have wrong thoughts about him. Some believers live in constant fear of being punished by God. Some live under the the shadow of the perception that God is disappointed in them. Some live afraid of doing something that would cause God to take away his gift of salvation. Others have wrong thoughts about God that go in another direction. They they are so accustomed to His grace that they're entitled. And so they believe they can sin with impunity. Many in the world and in the church live under the deception that God's unconditional love means that you can live however you want and God doesn't care. The only way to avoid these two errors is to... Uh, the two errors of an oppressive view of God on the one hand or a licentious view of God on the other hand is to cultivate and pursue right thoughts about God. Now, how do you know if you have right thoughts about God? Well, you could say that you know you have right thoughts about God when your thoughts line up with what Scripture says, and that's right. That's true. But let's answer the same question this way. If it's true that what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us, does it not follow that perhaps the most important reality in the universe is what comes to God's mind when he thinks about himself? Not only is it true that all of our lives is determined by our view of God, it's also true that God acts on the basis of his view of himself. Therefore, the starting point to understanding anything is to know that whatever comes into God's mind when he thinks about himself is what should come into our minds when we think about God. In other words, in the Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And the fear of the Lord, my preferred definition, is that when the heart of man is shaped by the heart of God. 
because God is all-knowing and all-wise, whatever comes into his mind when he thinks about himself is going to be the most accurate and wise thoughts any sentient being can have. Well, with that in mind, we come to our text where the Lord reveals to us what comes into his mind when he thinks about himself. Again, our focus is going to be verses 6 and 7 of chapter 34, but just to get the, the broader context in our mind, I want to start reading in chapter 38, verses, uh, starting in verse 18. Follow along as I read. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seen. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former ones which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of the mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord, which is a reference to worship. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and Take us as your own possession. This revelation of the glory of God is the most brilliant display of the person of God. And it is seen against the backdrop of the sin of man. Days earlier, while Moses was on the mountain receiving the law of God, the two tablets which he later broke, the people were down in the valley. And while Moses was having revelation from the living God, the people grew impatient. And they said to Aaron, make us an idol that we can worship that and follow that. 
They were just a month over from a month out from the magnificent displays of God's power where Yahweh had defeated the Egyptians and they had no excuse for their idolatry. They couldn't claim ignorance. Not enough time had passed to crowd out the memory of what God had done. Every day they were eating manna, which was a daily reminder of God's power exercised for their care and their good. They only had their hard hearts to blame for forgetting the Lord and and worshiping a false god. In response to their idolatrous and obstinate hearts, the Lord extended grace and determined to, to send an angel to lead them, lest his own holiness destroy them on the way. But not content with that extraordinary grace, Moses contended with God on behalf of the people and for the sake of God's glory. And he appealed to Yahweh to change his mind and go back to his original plan to go with them. More than that, Moses desperately wanted to know God. He had seen him work just like everybody else, and he had been God's servant, and so he had a direct line of communication with God, and he wanted to have a personal knowledge and revelation of God. He, he wanted to understand the heart of God. He didn't just want to be a witness to God's actions. He wanted to understand the mind and motivations and character of God that led to God's actions. As we saw last week, the Lord began his answer to Moses by declaring his sovereignty over mankind. Yahweh wanted Moses to know that he was not to be swayed by anyone to do anything that he had not already determined to do. It was critical for Moses, who was the, the leader of the nation and the mediator between God and the people, to know that Yahweh was sovereign over the decisions to judge and over the decisions to extend grace. He also wanted Moses to be certain that he would be gracious and he would be compassionate because he had determined to do so. He would save he would deliver, he would rescue his people from his own righteous wrath, not because anyone deserved it or they earned it or because Moses convinced him to do it, but solely because he had determined to do it. This is why the Lord delivered Israel out of Egypt and why the Lord would deliver Israel from the Canaanites and ultimately why he would deliver souls of those whom he chose from his own wrath. The Lord does those things on the basis of, of his own sovereign choice. Moses reminded the people in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not get, uh, set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept his oath, which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. It was the Lord's determination to love and to keep his promises that is the explanation for his saving Israel out of Egypt. Well, as vital as it, as it was for Moses to understand the sovereignty of God, there was yet more glory to be revealed. We don't have time to work through the details of uh, verse 19 down to 34 verse 5, but I do want to take just a few, make, make a few observations of this passage. I want you to notice that in verse 19, the Lord says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And then in verse 22, he says, and it will come about that while my glory is passing by, 
And then in verse 6 of our text, it begins, Then the Lord passed by in front of him. Goodness, glory, and God. The word goodness in the Hebrew means good. But in some contexts, it's a synonym for beauty. It can also be uh, have the idea of prosperity or abundance. It's the same word used earlier in Exodus to refer to Goshen as the best of the land. So when the Lord promises to make his goodness pass before Moses, it's not good as opposed to bad. Like, I'm going to show you my good parts and hide my bad parts. No, the Lord is accentuating to Moses the most glorious truths that show Yahweh to be magnificent and beautiful and better than all other so-called gods. Now, this passage, is, as we read, has, is full of anthropomorphic language referring to God's face and his hands and his back. God is spirit, so he has none of those things. But those, tr- those statements communicate that it would be impossible for Moses to be exposed to the unmitigated glory of God. His body, Moses' body, could not handle that sight. And so the Lord wants Moses to know that what he's going to get is just a glimpse. Not the whole. But I want you to notice that the glimpse that Moses saw with his eyes, a glimpse of the glory of God, was not worth writing about. He didn't tell us what he saw. He only told us what he heard. And that was enough to compel him to worship. Beloved, so often we want some manifest display of God's glory. And we think if I only had some vision of God, if I could only see something from heaven or or see God manifested in some tangible way, then that would lift me up from the trouble that I'm in and and enable me to move forward. Or that, that would help me overcome my sin. It's not true. You have, in the word of God, the sufficient revelation that God has given you to accomplish everything God expects of you in your life. Well, as we come to chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, we're going to see six facets of the glory of God unveiled to us so that we would worship Him. Six facets. The Lord reveals Himself as, you probably won't have time to write these down, but just to give them to you up front. The Lord reveals Himself as the glorious eternal Savior, the glorious gracious Savior, the gloriously faithful Savior, the gloriously extravagant Savior, the gloriously forgiving Savior, and the gloriously just Savior. Eternal, gracious, faithful, extravagant, forgiving, and just. And as we gaze at these six facets, of the glory of God, may these thoughts from the mind of God become what comes to our mind when we think about God and lead us to worship. Look at verse 6 to see that he is the gloriously eternal Savior. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. Yahweh proclaims his name twice for emphasis, as if to to jolt us awake and cause us to sit up in our seats and pay attention. The eternal God of the universe is speaking. 
So wake up, O sleeper, awake from your slumber. Bend your ear toward your maker. Listen up to what he has to say. Now, translations here differ on how the word, how the word God fits in. Does it go with the first phrase, Yahweh, Yahweh God? Or does it go with the second phrase, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious? The Hebrew text can go either way, but there are ancient markings in the Hebrew Bible that tell us connections or point us to connections between phrases and words. And those markings connect God with compassionate and gracious. And so that's how I'm going to take that this morning. Those of you with an ESV know that that's how the ESV translates it. Yahweh here is the name we studied in Exodus 3 when we looked at God's declaration to Moses that he is the I am who I am. We saw that for God to declare himself the I am means that he is the self-existing, all-powerful, unchanging God. He had no beginning and he has no end. He does not learn or grow or mature or digress. Nothing can be added to him and nothing can be taken from him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternal. Now, God's eternality is set against the backdrop of the finite and fickle humanity. We have a beginning. There is a moment in time when we do not exist, and then we are conceived, and in that moment, we exist. And we also have an end. There's a moment in time where we exist and a moment in time where, at least in the context of this world, we do not exist. We take our last breath, our heart stops beating, and we cease to exist in this world. Yes, our our souls live on, and in that sense, we're everlasting beings by God's sustaining power. But in the context of our life here, our life ends. Well, not only do we have a beginning and an end, but for the time that we exist, we do nothing but change. Our bodies are perpetually changing. Our souls are perpetually changing. We grow, we shrink, we learn, we forget. Our preferences change, our interests change, our personality changes, our character changes. We can be faithful in one moment and unfaithful in the next. We can believe the truth in a moment and believe a lie in the next. We can show kindness in one moment and flash anger in the next. We are always changing, not God. God never changes. His ways are perfect. So there's no need for him to change and no possibility of change. He is the eternal, self-sustaining, unchanging God. Now that should strike fear in the heart of the wicked. Because God is eternal and unchanging. That means his punishments are eternal and unchanging. And those who die in this life apart from Christ will know and experience the wrath of God forever and ever. And God's eternality and his unchanging justice will ensure it. On the other hand, those who are saved by Christ in this life, they will reign with him on the new earth forever and ever. And God's eternality and his unchanging redemption ensures it. He is the gloriously eternal Savior. We'll look at verse 6 again and see that he is also the gloriously gracious Savior. 
he declares Yahweh, Yahweh, a God compassionate and gracious. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious. We considered this truth last week as as we studied chapter 33, verse 19, where the Lord declares, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. The compassion of God is His tender care for His people in light of their sin and their suffering. He looks at the plight of fallen man and He is internally compelled to respond. As a father or mother has compassion on their children, Scripture says, so the Lord has compassion on us. After all, He he knows our weakness. He knows that we're beset by sin. He knows the pervasiveness of sin in the world creates an environment of sorrow. More than that, he, he knows the world as it was designed to be and, and the potential for joy and delight that was built into creation. He also knows the, the joy and the pleasure we'll experience, the, the freedom from trouble that we'll have for eternity on the new earth. And yet he looks at us living in this world where happiness, whatever happiness we can have, is always mixed with sorrow and difficulty. And the discrepancy between what was and what is or what is and what will be grieves his heart. And he's moved to action. What action? Grace. He sends forth grace to deliver his people. Grace is the granting of favor to those who are undeserving. And we could even say ill-deserving. We've become so accustomed to the grace of God in our day that we've never really understood just how gracious God is. And so the only way to understand grace is to understand first what you and I actually deserve. Romans 6.32 says the wages of sin is death. What do we deserve? Death. David says in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity. Job said in Job 14.4, Who can make it out of the womb unclean? No one. And then David says again in Psalm 58 verse 3, that wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. If the wages of sin is death, my friends, then what we all deserve is to have died before we were born. But if you're listening to the sound of my voice, That is not what you received. You received grace. In our earliest years, everyone around us sees with vivid clarity that we did not make it out of the womb sinless. We didn't need to be taught to disobey. We didn't need to be taught to take toys out of the hands of others. We didn't need to be taught to throw a tantrum. You know, those sinful actions and the thoughts and the motives that gave rise to them were built into our nature. We deserved to die. But that's not what you received. You received grace. Well, we, we got older, we, we learned to talk. And nobody taught us how to lie. Nobody taught us how to use our words to manipulate our parents. That sinful speech overflowed from a a sinful heart. We deserve to die. But if you're here, that's not what you received. You received grace. 
God's standard of righteousness, again, is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. There's never been a nanosecond of our lives where we have perfectly loved God and loved others, which means that every second of our lives, we fall short of the glory of God. And what we deserve for falling short of God's glory is death. But right now, if your heart is beating and your lungs are breathing, that's not what you are receiving. You're receiving grace. The grace of God overflows to us every second that passes by. The grace of God is seen that for as long as we have life and breath, we live in a world of wonder that puts God's glory on display. We can see and hear and feel the beauty and creativity and power of God as He graciously gives us endless opportunities to worship and praise and thank Him. He gives us eyes to see beauty and taste buds to enjoy flavor and nervous systems to feel pleasure and vocal cords to laugh and sing. Not only that, he gives us other people to know and enjoy and love. We could go on and on and on with all the ways that the Lord extends grace by not giving us death and instead granting us life and breath and all things. Every second of every day, every person experiences the grace of God, whether or not they believe in him or not. But in addition to the grace that he extends to all mankind during the days of their lives, to those he chooses, he extends saving grace, whereby he delivers us from the ultimate penalty of our sin, his just wrath. By grace alone, he counts us, our sin, that is, as paid for by Christ. He counts Christ's righteousness to our account. And in that great exchange, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He adopts us into his family and grants us everlasting life. God's compassion and his grace are beyond measure. The compounded sin of billions of people is not enough to outweigh the compassion and grace of God. One might think that the endless stream of sin that flows from the human heart would quickly exhaust the compassion and grace of God. But that's not the case. Because our gloriously eternal and gracious God is also our gloriously faithful Savior. Look at verse 6 to see that He is a gloriously faithful Savior. He goes on to say, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The grammar in the Hebrew puts these attributes together as two signs of the same coin. On the one hand, Yahweh is slow to anger. This is to say that he, he doesn't have a short fuse. He is not easily provoked. When we see God respond to sin in a way that to us looks like it's quite quick and harsh, it only appears that way to us because we don't know what's going on in the heart of man. Achan and his family were swiftly condemned, but days went by between his theft and his discovery where he had ample opportunity to repent. Ananias and Sapphira were killed the moment that they lied to the church. But the Lord was patient with them for days, if not weeks. 
as they coveted and planned and plotted and schemed of how could they get the applause of people while still keeping money to themselves. You know, God is so patient with us that the righteous often complain to God as to why he's not condemning the wicked. Yahweh is a patient God. No one can say that they didn't have time to repent. No one can claim that they had no opportunities. He is faithful to give each one extended grace. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is patient with you, not wishing anyone to perish, but that all would come to repentance. Some of you were saved at a very early age in life. Some of you were saved much later when there had been an extraordinary amount of sin. Praise God for his patience with you for decades before he saved you. Well, the other side of that coin is that he is abounding in loving kindness and truth. Or I prefer the ESV here. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Loving kindness translates chesed, one of the few Hebrew words that's actually helpful to know, which is God's undying unilateral commitment to work for the good of his people. Other translations have faithful love or unfailing love or loyal love. This committed love unceasingly acts faithfully to accomplish his good purposes for his people. And then the Hebrew word translated truth has the core idea of consistent. When it comes to ideas, it means to be consistent with reality, which is what we call truth. When it comes to character, it means to be consistent with one's identity and promises. And we call that faithful. God is a God of truth because his very being defines reality and everything he says is consistent with reality. And God is a God of faithfulness because he, he's always the same and he always fulfills his promises. Loving kindness and truth are often paired together in Scripture to, to highlight and to underline and to draw circles around and emphasize that we serve a faithful God. Psalm 36 verse 5 says, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. And Psalm 92 begins, It's good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. The faithfulness and steadfast love of the Lord ensures that His promises to His people will come to pass. Proverbs 16, verse 6 says, By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. The Lord doesn't just say that he has steadfast love or loving kindness and that he has truth or faithfulness. He declares that he's abounding in them. He overflows with steadfast love. He's bulging at the seams with faithfulness. Though the, the people of Israel were champions at the art of rebellion, God's faithful love would not depart from them. Ezekiel 16 is probably one of the most devastating descriptions of the unfaithfulness of Israel framed in language of immorality and adultery. But at the end of that chapter, when the reader is just disgusted with Israel's wickedness, the Lord says, Nevertheless, 
I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And so it is that we, God's people, continue to sin. Though there is not a moment in our lives when we fail to measure up to His perfection, God's love abounds to us. There's a never-ending stream of God's loyalty, love, and faithfulness for His people. And so Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Yahweh is a gloriously faithful Savior. Not only is He a gloriously eternal and gracious Savior, He's also, look at verse 7, to see that He is a gloriously extravagant Savior. Verse 7, He is a gloriously extravagant Savior who keeps loving kindness for thousands. This word keep, it has the idea of guarding or protecting or preserving. And the word thousands there is the largest numeral in the Hebrew language. And as we do today, a a large numeral, numeral in the plural is like an idiomatic way of referring to a large indefinite number. So when the Lord declares that he keeps loving kindness for thousands, he means that he is extravagant in the number of people to whom he extends grace. Now think about this, since since all people, without exception, deserve His wrath. If the Lord were just to redeem a handful, He would be rightly said to be a just and gracious God. Should He have only chosen Enoch, Noah, Job, Daniel, perhaps some of the prophets. Had he only chosen the women who followed Jesus around and seemed to be much more in tune to Jesus than the disciples were. Or the number of those who were saved by God numbering less than a hundred among the mass of humanity throughout history. God could be said to be both just and gracious. But my friends, this is not the case. The English language allows us to say that it's not just thousands to whom the Lord extends His loving kindness. It's in the millions upon millions, probably numbering into the billions throughout history. As one looks across the the sea of humanity, it may well be true that it's a minority who are saved, but it's not a 1% minority. God doesn't just save a, a thin slice of humanity. No, His salvation is extravagant. And the number of those whom he saves will be enough to populate the new earth, which without any seas will have space enough for billions of people to dwell for eternity. Yahweh is gloriously eternal, gracious, faithful, and an extravagant Savior. Look again at verse 7 to see that he is the gloriously forgiving Savior. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. This answers the question of how God saves. What does it mean to be saved? It means to have your sins forgiven. And the Lord uses these three terms here for sin to convey the the full breadth of the offenses against God that are forgiven for those whom He saves. There is certainly much overlap. These terms, you could almost say they're synonyms. 
But at the same time, you could also say that iniquity refers to our moral evil. Transgression refers to our hostility against the law of God. And sin refers to anything that fails to measure up to the holiness of God. All three together encompass our sinful nature, which is an offense to God, and every thought, word, and deed, which is contrary to the nature of God. All of which, individually and collectively, make us fully and rightly deserving of everlasting punishment because our sin is against the infinitely holy and eternal God. And so it is from the just wrath of God that we must be saved. And the only way to be saved is to have our sin taken away. What stands between us and God is our sin and nothing else. And here Yahweh declares that he takes our sin away. The word take is the word to lift or to carry or to take. And so forgiveness is the act of God by which he grabs hold of our sin. He lifts it up and takes it away from us such that it no longer stands as a barrier between us and God. And you could ask, well, what does God do with it? (laughs) He throws it an infinite distance from us. Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Forgiveness also is spoken of as a wiping away a debt. Colossians 2 verses 13 and 14 says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. How did he forgive? Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. To cancel a certificate of of debt in that day was to, to wipe a document clean such that no one would know that there had ever been a debt to begin with. Mankind is utterly bankrupt and fully indebted to God. But God has endless storehouses of grace from which he draws what he needs, what we need, and more to forgive our iniquity, transgression, and sin. He is a gloriously forgiving Savior. Finally, look at verse 7 to see that he is a gloriously just Savior. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. This tells us that while the Lord is merciful and gracious and forgiving, He is also just. He does not save some and just leave the rest alone. He doesn't adopt some into His family and ignore the rest. He he doesn't forgive some and leave the rest to perpetually accumulate infinite debt without ever calling on their loans. Now, he always punishes sin. The justice of God cannot be thwarted. Scripture says it's appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment. So the guilty will stand before God and they will find that God does not accept appeals for mercy on the final day. On the day of judgment, it will be too late for grace. 
On that day, there will be no testimony and no defense. There will be one and only one question. Is your name in the book of life? And if not, you will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20 verse 15. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses reminds the people of God that he's a saving God uh, to those who submit to him. And, And he says, but he repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Now, it may seem in the context of this life that justice is often delayed. But in the context of eternity, their judgment comes as swiftly as their sin moves from their heart out to their actions. God's time is not our time. God's justice is not our justice. What seems like injustice to us only seems that way because we weigh sin in finite categories within our finite framework of time. But God, who is outside of time and over time, weighs sin according to its infinite offense against a holy God, then he measures out his justice according to his eternal perspective. This is why Paul writes in Romans 12, 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God will exact his vengeance on the wicked and ensure that they are not rescued by his grace if they had not already been chosen. They will experience the wrath of God. But what do we make of that last phrase in verse 7? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Some see here a proof of generational curses, but that is a pagan idea. The Bible gives no credence to generational curses. Deuteronomy 24 verse 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. And then the entire Chapter of Ezekiel, chapter 18, expands on this, but verse 20 sums it up saying, The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So what does it mean that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation? Well, it's simply this. Even though there, there are not generational curses, there is generational influence. Sin often perpetuates across generations because subsequent generations have no knowledge of the truth. A direct parallel to this is in the context of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 5, where it says, You shall not worship idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So each generation is punished when they hate God as their fathers hated God. Each soul is punished for his or her own sin. And each generation indeed does have an impact on the next. This very generation to whom Moses 
ministered, refused to enter the promised land. And guess what? They consigned their children to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Numbers 40, 14 verse 33 says, Your son shall be shepherd for 40 years in the wilderness. They will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. We cannot blame God or anyone else when our sins, when the natural consequences, that is, for our sins spill over onto our children. But I want you to notice the contrast between verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, the Lord keeps loving kindness for thousands. And some, because of the, the close proximity, would say that that means thousands of generations, though I'm not sure that that's actually what it means. But thousands is what's put there. In verse 7, God visits the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. What that tells us is that God's grace is extravagant and his justice is measured. His steadfast love is super abounding and his justice is restrained such that in his grace, he often breaks the cycle of sin. We see this represented throughout Israel's history where a certain generation or two rebel against the Lord and follow after false gods, but then God judges them and he gives them over to their enemies, at which point that next generation cries out to the Lord and the Lord delivers them. That's the cycle of the book of Judges, but that pattern can be seen all throughout the Old Testament. So the Lord is gracious to limit the extent of sin. That's clearly different than the hands-off approach he used before the flood, where there was somewhere around 10 generations of uninterrupted wickedness on the earth. And as I said, when we studied Genesis 6, this was to show that no matter how much time you gave humanity, we cannot save ourselves. But after the flood, to prevent humanity from reaching such depths of wickedness, the, the Lord limits lifespans. And he often limits that rebellious cycle of successive generations so that even in his justice, he demonstrates grace. The lingering question of this text and the rest of the Old Testament is how can God forgive and still be just? Forgiveness is punishing the guilty. And yet he emphatically states there that he does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. So how can God be both a forgiving and a just Savior? Well, for the sake of time, let me just get straight to the answer. The answer to how Yahweh can be gloriously eternal and gracious and faithful and extravagant and forgiving and just is the person and work of Jesus Christ, which culminated at the cross. If you want to know what a gloriously eternal, gracious, faithful, extravagant, forgiving, and just Savior looks like, look no further than Jesus hanging on the cross. Where out of love and compassion, the God-man took upon himself the wrath of God to forgive sinners. As Jesus hung on the cross, the, 
The Father took all of the sin of those whom he had chosen and placed them into the account of Christ, making it just for the Father to bring down his full fury of infinite wrath on the infinite person of Christ. And then having satisfied his just wrath on the Father, the Father placed into the accounts of all those whom he chosen the full credit of the righteousness of Christ. And three days after Christ died on that cross, the Father raised Him from the dead as confirmation of His victory over sin and death. At the cross, God demonstrated that He is the eternal Savior by being gracious and faithful and the just God that He had declared Himself to be thousands of years earlier. At the cross, God demonstrated that He is the gracious Savior by giving His one and only Son to save His enemies. At the cross, God demonstrated that He is the faithful Savior by fulfilling His covenant promises to save and redeem and to forgive His people. At the cross, God demonstrated that He is an extravagant Savior by satisfying the wrath of God, not for a few, but for many throughout the ages. At the cross, God demonstrated that He is the forgiving Savior by giving us the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of His people. And at the cross, God demonstrated that He is the just Savior by propitiating for sin, satisfying the wrath of God through Jesus Christ as our substitute. At the cross, the the full panoply of God's glory is on display. Seeing the glory of the cross where Jesus died is what saves the soul. And because He knows this, the devil is working overtime to try to stop people from seeing the glory of God at the cross. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel in the glory of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then it goes on to say, "For For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Well, because of what Jesus Christ did at the cross. The Apostle John in his vision in Revelation 5 witnessed all of the angels and the saints in heaven singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then all creation sings together to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Beloved church, let these thoughts about God be what come to our mind when we think about God so that we would worship Him and let His ways become our ways so that we put his glory on display for others to see what kind of a God we serve. Let's pray. Oh God, if there is anyone here who has been blind to your glory, may you open their eyes having heard this revelation from yourself or cause them to see their sin 
in their desperate need of forgiveness. And may they look to Christ where your glory was on display and would they trust in him. And God, for those of us who have been saved by your grace, may this demonstration of your glory not become old hat to us. Lord, we confess that sometimes it has. Many times we have just treated it as same old, same old. Common truth. Lord, would your spirit penetrate that calloused heart, humble us, and cause us to see the glory of who you are and worship you and live for you. For the sake of Christ, amen.